Hi, my name's James Fowle, and this is the Huxley Morton Podcast. I hope you're enjoying series three so far. And before we jump back in for another episode, I'd love it if you could like, subscribe, and hit that notifications button, as it really helps us to increase our reach. We run the show to both help and inspire those working in clinical research. So if there's anyone else that you think would benefit from tuning in, please spread the word. For now though, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast with me, James Fowle, founder and director at Huxley Morton, and my co-host, biometrics consultant, Adam Walker. Join us on the show this week is Joe Abakdi, uh, CEO at QuantGene. Uh, Joe, fabulous to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Hi, James. Hi, Adam. Good to see you, Joe. As I say, it's been a while, Joe, since you and I, I think, first got on a, uh, a call. And I was interested when we first spoke to, to hear that, um, about some of the bits and pieces that you guys have been up to at QuantGene and, and um, I guess some of the, the pivots that you've made over the last 18 months. But look, first of all, give us a bit more of an introduction about you, your role and what you guys are doing as, as a company. Well, Quantine is, uh, was founded in 2015 uh, out of UC Berkeley. We were in a lab there. And um, back then, the vision was uh, very straightforward. We saw an opportunity to advance what's called liquid biopsy, which mm-hmm. is the ability to detect multiple cancers at earliest stages in the blood. Mm-hmm. And that was based on a machine learning insight, a mathematic insight about cancer patterns uh, that is unique to Quantine that we understand better than other people, um, what patterns of mutations would identify something as a tumor. And we combined that capability with um, what we call single molecule sequencing. So an advancement in sequencing technology, mostly in the cloud, mostly bioinformatics processing that uses Illumina platforms uh, to go very deep into a blood sample and achieve very close to single molecule sensitivity meaning the ability to pick up a single molecule of cell-free DNA. So DNA that potentially stems from a tumor cell, profiles it and identifies it. Mm -hmm. And we came a very long way since then. It has been six years of R&D. And uh, in that time, we developed, I think, one of the world's most advanced sequencing technologies, added large clinical trials to it so we can identify these cancer patterns empirically based on large sets of patients we investigated. And we are now bringing this whole system to market, which is a world's first, that you have actually a blood sample-based multi-cancer early detection system that Mm -hmm. works very likely better than um, existing protein tests and standard of care, at least outside the the key cancers, like outside colonoscopies. Mm -hmm. Confident claims, I I like that, Joe. so look, I, I guess with that in mind, I mean, how did you even get into this in, in the first place? Because I, I know that your background is, is quite varied uh, and very entrepreneurial. So tell us about, yeah, how you, how you first got into this and, and um, I guess where Quantine yeah, falls in, in the sequence of your own career. Yeah, my, my background, if you only look at my education, I'm an economist, right? So people think, why the hell is an economist doing this kind of stuff? Mm. Uh, if you dig a little deeper, um, you know, the first 19, 20 years of my life were very medically inspired. So my whole family are medical uh, scientists, actually. So my dad is a professor of microbiology. My mom was a life science and, and doctor, uh, life science researcher, uh, also microbiology and cell biology centric. 
So, and they were very passionate. So for the first 19 years, I got free lectures every, free involuntary lectures every night at the dinner table uh, mm -hmm. about alpha toxin, the immune system, you know, cytokines and all kinds of stuff. So I didn't even notice that education, but it was very intense um, <laughs> because I heard about not my health. And so I always had a certain proclivity, natural proclivity towards bio papers, right? Everything in life science, I have a very easy time reading papers. I was never aware of that. I actually became aware that I understand, you know, medical science and biology papers vastly easier than other stuff after I got into physics and started reading up on nuclear physics papers and thought I'm extremely dumb because every time I read a paper, normally when I read papers, it's like reading a, a novel. I would just read, oh, interesting, interesting, next one. Mm. And then I went into another subject where I wasn't primed and it took me, I don't know, a week for the first one. And I thought I'm extremely bad at that stuff. And then people told me, no, it's actually normal. Like if you have a complicated nuclear physics paper, it takes a while to understand. But the same is true for you know, cell biology. So I realized, oh, maybe my priming in my early years just made me, you know, skilled in that sector. And that became clear. Wow. And other stuff. And um, yeah, so I think that always inspired me a little bit. And then when it came down to choosing back then, you know, after high school, what do I want to do? The last thing I wanted to do is medicine because I thought uh, I know that stuff. I don't want to hear more of that. Mm. So which disappointed my parents, of course. And I went into economics and then business. And I always had this feeling like, okay, I, I get medicine, but who pays for all that stuff? Like why do certain things happen and other things don't happen in terms mm. of research, in terms of patients? And these are all economics questions. So it was very healthcare driven, my interest, because that's what I knew best. Yeah. And then I realized, well, there's more than healthcare, and it's a very large connected system, our society and civilization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything's an economics decision in the end. Someone has to decide where the money goes. And these are very interesting questions that are extremely crucially important for innovation in biotech and healthcare, too. Mm. And it was actually very beneficial that I have a very economics-driven uh, perspective. Uh, everything we do at Quantine always starts with the question, what is possible? What should be possible? And how do we pay for it? Mm -hmm. Short and long-term. Like where is, are the strategic value pockets that are not being unlocked here? And that combination of, you know, a deep interest in biology and medicine on a technical level, but also a uh, being very cognizant of the economics implications, I think uh, creates a very powerful innovation ecosystem here at Quantine. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I like to do things that, that way. And so far it has paid off. And it also informed our next step at Quantine that we are taking uh, since, especially since this year, where we got full regulatory approval for everything um, on a clear level and LDT level, which is much harder than it sounds actually for uh, something we do, uh, for something unprecedented because you have to prove your performance mm -hmm. uh, when there is no comparison system that is as uh, precise. But, you know, this economics perspective also informs what we're doing now. And that is, what is the delivery model of a multi-cancer detection system? Yeah, you know, is it the old diagnostics model where you have a test and you try to sell it to physicians? 
um, or not? And our answer is it's clearly not because that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's too new. It's too much data. We get 10 billion data points per blood sample. If you throw 10 billion data points as a physician, they just think you have gone completely nuts. And they're used to one. If you do a PSA test, you get one. So in order to bring that to patients, you have to bridge an enormous gap between diagnostics devices and genomics technology and the reality of care. And the way Quantine does that is we are building an integrated system that includes physician services and medical services. Mm-hmm. So what we're selling is not a test. What we are selling is a cancer protection and detection medical service. And that service determines on a medical practice level, which tests are appropriate, how to interpret these tests and how to translate them into downstream diagnostics. So in the end, the whole system is not optimized for selling the maximum number of tests as every other biotech company is. You know, you want to sell your pills or you want to sell your tests as your business model. Our business model is optimize and maximize patient protection and outcomes. And we actually take charge of that and we own that problem and we are getting measured against it. So what we learned is you have to embed advanced biotechnologies like the ones we developed into something that's a care delivery system. And you have to take accountability and responsibility for the actual performance with patients, the medical performance. That aligns the interests of patients and company. And that also creates a much, much bigger value creation engine. It's harder to do because, you know, you have to go from primers and and sequencing strategies to bioinformatics and cloud AI technologies to clinical trials. And then you have to go into care algorithms and diagnostics algorithms with physicians. And then you have to go into physician marketing and then you have to go into customer care. So it's a more complex integrated system. But the economic and medical upside, the value you create financially and the value you create for patients is just massively and exponentially higher. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is, um, I guess, impressive stuff that you are doing there, um, Joe. I guess the bit that I'm, I guess, thinking about is just how, how you, I guess, put together this medical background where it was almost not forced upon you, but, you know, subliminally you were getting this medical background and then you brought the economic side of it um, and you've merged the two to become, I guess, almost a serial entrepreneur. And now it sounds like you you live it, you breathe it, and you are so much into the science um, that you're doing stuff that, as you say, a lot of other biotechs are just not doing. Um, and therefore your results are, are, are different and, and I guess better in, in your eyes, correct? Well, it's always, t- you know, in science, it's very easy. You just, uh, who's better? You just look at the publications and then you see, well, you know, we, we published the highest accuracy in sequencing ever published in terms of broad sequencing panels. So yes, I think we are the best in high accuracy sequencing in the world. When it comes to the actual cancer detection, that is an incredibly difficult, you know, judgment to make who is the best. Very much more difficult than it seems. Like we didn't publish anything yet, but we are in peer review for something that I think will create a lot of attention Mm -hmm. uh, for a large feasibility study where we investigated seven different cancer types. 
and show the detection performance or the differentiation performance to be super accurate here. Um, in terms of real screening studies and, and other companies that do stuff like that, I think there's not much out there. I mean, there are some companies, especially one that just published a, the Pathfinder study, a very underwhelming performance, but better than nothing. So we are always glad to see anyone trying to show liquid biopsy performance. Um, we know now uh, where the bar is, the threshold. There's literally only one study in the world ever published, that was two months ago, right. that did anything that is a true screening study in liquid biopsy, at least in multi-cancer detection. And yeah, that's, our, that's the industry's bar now. There's one publication that shows nine early states detected in six and a half thousand, 50 plus year olds. Mm -hmm. That's probably a 10, percent detection performance. Um, I think it's great that the study was done. It shows that it's possible. I mean, eight or 10% is better than nothing and nothing is what we get right now. Mm -hmm. um, and now the question is, can quantine beat that number? And, you know, these screening studies are difficult to set up. They're expensive. You have to basically look at only non-diagnosed patients and figure out who actually has cancer without anyone ever knowing that beforehand. Different from a feasibility study where you take cancer patients versus controls and see if you can differentiate in a blinded setting. Mm -hmm. But a true screening study has to basically only use patients that are not diagnosed. And obviously you need many more patients because then most patients don't have cancer. So we are working also on something, I think very exciting. I think in the next 12 months, we will come out with results for that one. And uh, yeah, as I said, it's gonna be interesting. We know the bar now. Sounds Mike, can I, can I jump in on that, Joe? Because you've mentioned a couple of very interesting components there. The, the way you started off, you were talking about your economics meets science. That reminded me of health outcomes research really closely. It sounds like you had an early grounding in health outcomes research before you decided what you were going to do, whether you liked it or not. You were exposed to that kind of activity all the time. So, you know, the, the value of the value of finding outcomes effectively is, is that is that fair is that correct is that how it kind of translated yeah i mean the let's say the levels of evidence the hierarchy of evidence is straightforward on the lowest end straight evidence but the lowest level is you know feasibility you you just look at okay if you claim you can detect cancer take 50 pancreatic cancer patients, take 200 controls, mix them up, line them, and tell me if you can tell me, uh, or tell me who has pancreatic cancer, who doesn't. That's great. So that's what we did, and we have some of the best performance there. And that will come out in the next probably two months, peer reviewed. Now, the next level of evidence are screening studies, where you say, well, can you also tell me when, you, when I give you 10,000 patients with no cancer, who has cancer? It's a whole magnitude harder because no one ever knows that. So you have to actually detect it. And then to your point, Adam, the highest level of evidence is, well, can you show that your entire thing in the end saves lives and saves money potentially um, without even being interested in the details? Like, can you just show that? Yeah. The fact, like you take a giant cohort, you apply your system, and after 10 years, more people are alive than in the control cohort. And, and you probably spend less money, maybe, or more. Who knows? Like, that's the question. And 
these studies are not just exponentially more valuable, they are also exponentially more difficult. Yeah. Because as you can imagine, you know, the first one, give me pancreatic cancer patients or colon, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Take controls. You can source them. You can source them in four months. You mix them up, blind them, and you have your result. The screening study, you need... I mean, pancreatic cancer is a great example. If you have 50 pancreatic cancer patients in, your, in order to get there in a screening study, if you have an incidence rate of seven in 100,000, you can do the math. You need half a million people. So that, you know, instead of, instead of 250 people, you need 500,000 people. So, you know, in, in, instead of spending uh, 250 times whatever, 2,000 bucks, you're spending 500,000 times 2,000 bucks, so a billion. It's pretty expensive. And when it comes to outcomes, you have to do the whole thing. And you have to do it maybe not with 250,000, depending what cancer you want, but you have to follow probably 20, 30, 40,000 people over 10 years. Yeah. You need to manage them too. You have to call them. You have to get their medical records. You have to figure out the entire spending on it or work with a system that knows that. And that's going to be very, very expensive, but it's also going to be very slow. That's maybe nowadays a bigger problem because capital is always flying around. It's not too hard for us to get a lot of capital, but time is not flying around. Time is just flying, <laughs> not around. So... You can, so, hear, you can hear the econo- uh, economist in him there, can't you, Adam, with, in terms of figures and, and things like that? Um, I guess look, at the back of my mind. This is the most overlooked, in my opinion, in an absurd way. Economics is the most important thing that is the most overlooked in medical research and especially in biotech. Like when I talk to scientists, bioscientists, there is there such smart, you know, intelligent curious people but there is a complete absence of awareness of time like okay if you do that are you done in two months or are you done in eight months mm. they just they don't i don't know i just what needs to be done but if you think like that suddenly you lost 25 years and 25 years for a disease where you have 600,000 deaths in the united states per year that's 25 times 600,000 dead people so you know, that is every single year, two and a half times the World War II casualties of the United States. So that's not good. So economics is not just a few numbers. You're talking about millions of dead people if you do it wrong and you're currently doing it wrong. And Joe, why, why, why cancer? Why oncology? Because I, I guess, you know, going into this world, there's so many different areas. Was there, I don't know, something personally or... You know, what was your, what was the driving force about that choice or, or was it a driving force or was it, you know, just the, the research that you had, had done? How, what, how did that come about? It's a confluence of two factors. One is very personal. Um, we have cancer in the family. Um, I lost my mom three years ago to cancer, colon cancer late stage. Mm-hmm. Um, lost my grandfather to pancreatic cancer. My aunt had breast cancer. So it's in the family. It's in most families, but uh, we also affected. Um, late detection definitely killed my mother. That's pretty clear. Um, even though she was a doctor, she was aware of everything. But, you know, if you do colonoscopies every 10 years, I mean, it's easy to be too late. Mm. Um, 
so first of all, and, and when you think about it, I also lost other family members, of course, to other diseases. But if you, my grandma died of, well, old age, but that's what you're saying. You die of old age if you have cardiovascular issues, if you have a stroke, mm-hmm. if you have mental uh, cognitive decline. These are not even, it's, if it's not early, state, uh, early onset Alzheimer's, if it's just late stage neurodegenerative diseases, we are not even calling it a disease. We are just saying, well, she's 90 and she's no. losing her cognitive abilities. I think or, you're right. it's, it's so close to home for, for everyone. And, um, you know, my, my granddad at the moment is suffering with, with cancer and probably, yeah, his time is limited now. And it's just, as you say, it's, it's just something that everyone has had an experience of, uh, I think. So that has clearly been one of the, the, the driving forces for yourself with so many uh, in your family experiencing it. Um, and you're, the work that you're doing is instrumental to try and, I guess, improve outcomes, I guess. Yes, and it's, so that's the personal part. The cancer, we have it in the family. I'm very affected by it. Um, I'm concerned myself about it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also, when you compare it to other diseases, it's kind of on the meaner side of disease. If someone has a stroke or... Mm. Uh, some cardiac event or neurodegenerative and it's very old, you think like, okay, to some extent, it's just what it is. It's like, but cancer is not what it is. Cancer is still like an invasive disease somehow, mm. something alien. And it's very scary. And the, the other factor that drove me was a totally different type of factor. What we see is an enormous revolution in genomics, sciences and technologies. And we know that cancer is a, you know, genomic problem, an informational problem. And so of all these diseases for cancer, we suddenly have an enormous arsenal of new weapons to defeat cancer and limitless arsenal of new weapons like this whole genomic revolution. Mm -hmm. So it is pretty clear to me that of all the diseases, cancer is probably the most vulnerable to this new tech cycle that we are in. And so it's a combination of being probably one of the worst diseases outside maybe early onset Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the most likely to be defeated in the next 10 years through information warfare. That's how I call it. Not through drugs. It's about, you know, extreme medical intelligence like that we can increase by millions of times now. Well, it's good to know that we've got people like you uh, on our side and I guess fighting uh, that, that cause. Um, I guess on the business side of, of things, Joe, how have things gone since the pandemic broke out? Because I know that that has, um, I guess, had an impact on so many businesses. Um, some have, you know, had to ride it out. Others have, you know, fallen by the wayside. Others has actually, you know, taken an obstacle and, and turned it into an opportunity. How's it gone for you guys at, at QuantGene? Yeah, because we are in the um, molecular diagnostics field and we have a core strength in cloud technologies, um, you know, and we are here in Los Angeles in Santa Monica, there was a conference of factors where we said, okay, we're not going to sit by here and see capital markets go down and our ability to raise funds go down and if we go down, we need to do something. So we actually, compared to what we normally do, testing for COVID is probably a thousand a thousandth of the complexity. It's incredibly simple. It's a PCR test and you put it in and you get your curve. 
and you see what it is. It's, you know, literally thousands of times easier than deep sequencing. Mm -hmm. So we started doing that and we connected these PCRs. We, we basically, as an economist, again, we, I looked at, okay, what's the actual problem? Everyone says they can do testing, but it's not about testing. What do the clients say? And the clients, for example, movie productions, probably the biggest pressure test for COVID testing are movie productions because they have a requirement to do same day testing. And if they don't deliver the test for the crew, they have to shut down the movie set. Now, if you think about blockbuster movie sets, you have 500 or 1,000 people on the set that make a lot of money, some of them, and some of them are Tom Cruise, and they get a real meltdown if you send them home next day because you forgot to test, and then you have a major problem. Mm. And it's in People magazine, so you don't want that. So, so they are actually, in a funny way, the highest pressure environment for COVID testing because it's a lot of money, a lot of celebrity involved, a lot of pressure. Mm. And if something goes wrong... I mean, there's a major problem. And so the lab companies completely failed, the established lab companies. They just couldn't deliver that. You need to be on-site, you need to be rapid testing, but you need gold standard RT-PCR tests. So what, what we developed is now the nation's leading system for high-pressure RT-PCR testing. Um, not just the nation's, we're going a little international with it now, um, likely. So what we developed is mobile laboratory technology where we can go very close to the sites, a whole nursing infrastructure where you go on site and do the swabbing, and then a cloud system, an AI system that allows us to have instant uh, reporting of results to mobile phones and employer interfaces or, or government level interfaces. Incredible. And that is very cool because it was a custom made laboratory management system. It's more than a laboratory management system. It's an horizontal cloud. It's basically your your Netflix or your Disney, and you say, I want to see everything that's happening in real time from swap to shipment to every step of the PCR process to it's coming out of the machine to the lab director, sign it off, and it's a confirmed result. And so you have real-time employer and you have real-time um, patient um, mobile phone access. And that was pretty revolutionary for some reason I don't even understand. But I mean, normally labs are not operating on that level. And so you're waiting to jump in here. I, I, I'm, I'm all over. I'm all over this. This is. This I is know. Pinging. This is pinging all over the place for me. Um, Joe, this is incredible how you're describing it because I'm aware of a similar company that's doing something similar in the UK, and I won't mention their name. However, I do know a couple of people that work for them, and when they first started doing this at the beginning of the, the the pandemic. I did make contact with them and asked them what they were doing with their data and indeed whether or not they saw any value in that real world evidence and the real world data. And do you know what the response I got was? I hope this isn't the same as, I don't think it will be the same response as I get from you. Basically they said, well, we're so busy, we just don't have time. We don't have time to do anything. We're just, we're just getting the results out, getting them as quick as we possibly can. And that's our focus right now. We're going to look at it at a later point. And I went, you're missing a trick here surely you must understand that you're missing a trick and of course the difficulty the difficulty with that of course was these people are not biometricians they're not specialists in data they're not specialists in in laboratories to be quite frank you know they found an opportunity they saw an opportunity they acted upon it what i'm hearing from you is that you are an expert you have experts around you and 
and you have also seen an opportunity, but you're acting on it in real time. And you're doing something with that and you're motivated by using the right technologies, namely cloud and machine learning and various other activities around it. I'd love to hear more about that particular piece. And, and if you could speak to that point, that would really, that would really help me, me understand it a bit better. I mean, it's, it's important as always. Um, I think the challenge in our industry is in general that the science, the biological science is so complicated and so deep that people get really lost in it. They say like, oh, I can do this primer and here actually this curve is like, you know, offset by half a point here and there that they forget why are we doing this? Like, what is the bigger picture here? What about, and it goes all the way into data science, which is not biological science. And yeah. so you need a different mindset into, again, economics or business. Like, why does an employer even test? Why does a government test? What do they actually need to know? Like, they need to control the pandemic, like on a government level. Correct. On a level, they need to identify and trace down anyone who could potentially be, have COVID fast, time. Right? There is a big difference if you know it on Wednesday or if you know it on Monday. And this is the kind of thinking that's completely lacking in biological sciences. Like the, the understanding Wednesday is very different from Monday yeah. because you have a certain R. And you know, if that thing spreads and you allow it for two days to spread in your school or on your movie set, I mean, you can have you the got a problem. Like you, you have to think in numbers and the actual outcome and the outcome is to protect, keep us all safe from a pandemic, from a dangerous virus uh, or potentially dangerous virus. And uh, that is your objective. Testing has that objective, but the test itself to optimize the biochemical performance of the test is a tiny little piece of the equation. If you then let it spread while you're figuring out your amazing test, that is stupid. Like a worse test with a worse performance performs better you than like. you if it's faster. Right, or if it's more frequent, same in cancer detection, right? That's what people also don't totally get. Like it's about costs, it's about frequency, it's about how easy is it to get the test, it's about adherence rates. If you want to know the actual outcome in a in a cancer population for any kind of measure, it's not just about the sensitivity and specificity of that specific test. It's about okay, how often can you do the test? How dangerous is it to administer the test, how complicated is it, and that all informs how frequent you can do it, then it also informs what the adherence rate is, right? You have these great CT scans for, you know, people at high risk for lung cancer, great idea by Congress, make them all get CTs. The adherence rate in Los Angeles is 9% wow. because people just don't get it because it's too complicated. A blood test you can do at home, here you have to Schedule something, go somewhere, get a CT scan, it's a little scary and all kinds of stuff. So both for COVID and for any diagnostics or any kind of medical, medical activity, you, these are population health concerns. What are, what are the adherence rates? What's the ease of use? What is the actual risk to do it? And these all go into the equation and the sensitivity and specificity, what everyone stares at, is just a little tiny piece of the equation. An important piece, but it's uh, not the decisive driver of outcomes alone. I think you've absolutely touched on so many points there. Um, the other, the other challenge that we've had, particularly in the UK, is that the associated track and trace process has also failed. So that delay in informing people and positive testers, you know, positive outcomes, have 
having itself then further delayed and, and pushed pushed the bar away from from the results yeah um, and Adam, this is exactly why we believe in always in cloud and when i say genomics cloud and ai is the tech center pieces of one gene outside the medical it's pivotal it's absolutely pivotal to the but you mentioned the real-time data collection and that is absolutely pivotal and that was the point i tried to make to this particular company they're you know they're making millions and they're fine you know they, they're not going to go poor but the fact is that they're missing a trick because there's all this early detection that they're not really sharing or doing anything with and in a wider population you know let's say they've got the majority of the contracts all around the uk airports they could be doing an awful lot more as i say i've not mentioned their name but They'll know who they are, and um, when they listen to this and they listen to you, I, 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 I think they might get that message loud and clear. But I, I think you've explained and, that really well. I think so too. Yeah, and I totally agree, uh, Adam. I think, I think it's a general learning or general paradigm in all technology businesses, but especially in healthcare and biotech. You always have to start with the question: Why are we doing this? Not what are we doing or how do we do it? Why are we doing it? What is the overall objective? The overall objective of a cancer detection test is to defeat cancer and to extend human life and protect it. It is not to develop a test that the insurance pays for so you can maximize the sales for that test. That's a completely twisted worldview. Unfortunately, that's the baseline. That's what even investors think, oh, that's such a great idea. That's like smart business. You just think about the CPT code and then you sell more. Like, no, it's dumb business because you're capping your whole market. Your TAM is capped by that. You, you can maybe make $5 billion with it, but you can never make $500 billion. So it's an unwise decision financially. And, you know, for patients, it's even worse because you're not thinking about them and how to protect them. Interesting. I, I think from my side, um, I agree with Adam. Look, you've capitalized on an opportunity there massively. Um, it shows that you've been able to adapt and take, I guess, what you were doing previously um, and actually use that, that skill to do something that is easier uh, than what you were perhaps doing before um, to great effect. But what I'm wondering is, is how, how did your team, as the, the company leader, did they get behind you on this? How was how was it re received? And what other, I guess, challenges um, did it throw up in making that change and, and doing something that you hadn't, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, like a, previously? I mean, we had an incredible task force. When you think about, we didn't pivot the entire company to do COVID, right? We have our core Berlin team. Uh, most of our PhDs are in Berlin, uh, Germany. They are doing the deep, you know, bioinformatics machine learning on cancer data. Uh, we have a very small team in Geneva and Switzerland for clinical trials. They were completely unaffected. They didn't even get involved in any way in COVID. Mm -hmm. The main unit that had to pivot was our cloud team. That was the shared team and they had to focus for three, four months, basically full-time on COVID. So that was the only cost we really had. All the other team members were operational team members here in some clinical kind of operators that pulled off the whole COVID thing. So we were actually very lean in doing it. The, the only shared resource with cancer was the cloud team. And in that case of the cancer R&D, cloud wasn't that important, right? We had to work on bioinformatics, we had to work on machine learning, and we had to work on clinical trials, but the cloud system itself, the actual software mm -hmm. development wasn't, I mean, the, the when I say, I don't want to go too deep into quantities or charts, but mm. the, 
when I say cloud team, it's not the, the science team does a lot of cloud, but it's not, we don't call it cloud. They just work on Amazon AWS and they run their bioinformatics, but the cloud team is a professionalized, like how do you build complex scalable cloud systems? And so they were, they were a little underutilized because we didn't need that at that point in time. And so it was a pretty, it was a pretty lean operation. We did not spend a lot of extra time or money on COVID it was all, we were able to carve out resources we didn't need or hire new resources that were instantly profitable. Mm -hmm. The cloud technology itself is relatively cheap, isn't it? It's, it's the data scientists that are the, the expense. It's the people, it's the brains behind that. Is that, is that fair? Well, the cloud, developing the cloud system is not cheap because again, it's the brains. You need, yeah. excellent, you need just an excellent developer team. I was a small, like four people or five in total. Um, it's not that small actually, but for a dedicated cloud team, but they are excellent and they're not cheap, but, but you're right. Once you have the system developed, it's very cheap to run the resources up to you. Yeah, it, but it's, it, it absolutely pivots around that, that core team, doesn't it? It's about involving, involving and retaining that talent so that you build the information and the knowledge behind that. Yes. That then ultimately supports the business, whichever way that you choose for that to then uh, spin out into whichever area of. of it's also interesting to see, you know, to have very powerful teams in bioinformatics, um, in machine learning, and in cloud. These are our three core tech teams outside medical. Um, you don't need a lot of people, you just need very good people. So our teams are always team Great. size from three to six in these. Uh, that is more than sufficient. And often I see it with a bunch of peers we have, they think, you know, scale is matters more than quality. That's not the case because you think, oh, they can't solve the problem. Let's hire 12 more. Yeah. Well, that's not how you solve the problem. It's very yeah. hard to explain to, you know, the your usual capitalists. I think, well, just hire 10 more. It's like, that's not how it works. If you have a hard problem, you need to stick with your three or four. And you have to really go in and just keep doing it for three years and then it works. And that's very hard to accept for investors. They say, this yeah. is stupid. you have so much money, just accelerate. It's like, there is nothing to accelerate here. It's just tough. These are unsolved problems. And you, it's like going to Einstein and tell him, here's 10 million, do it 10 times faster. And he's like, I can't. I can't. It takes as long as it takes. Yes, it takes time. <laughs> Interesting. I, look, I, I agree with that, Joe. It's, it's about getting the people right because ultimately that is where the strength of, of any business comes from. Um, but look, what, what are the plans uh, for yourself and for, for QuantGene moving forward? Is there going to be more expansion? Is there going to be further innovation? Is there going to be any more offshoots um, to the business that you, you can tell us about, I guess? Well, for QuantGene, I mean, what is next is we are commercializing Serenity which is the cancer detection solution mm -hmm. and protection system, the integrated system that I explained. We are pushing COVID forward, might go international with it, more on a government level. Um, I think our path forward is very clear. We have, you know, economically, we have certain paradigms and convictions where we see where the future of medicine is being built and the future of healthcare that are contrarian um, I, in, in the United States, it's very clear to me that the future of healthcare is going to be created through what I call an innovation cascade 
it's not going to start with Medicare. It's not going to start with insurance companies in conventional healthcare. Mm-hmm. There is a certain subset of consumers, the earliest adopters and the innovators that I estimate are probably, you know, three to six million people in the US who are willing to pay out of pocket, that are willing to experiment with stuff, plus employers. And so that combination of self-payers and self-insured employers that make their own medical decisions, what they pay for. That's the people who can you can build the future of healthcare with. Because for a simple reason, they need a lower level of evidence to take action. For them, if something is more likely than not to work, they're going to say, well, give it to me. I don't want to die. If, you know, if, if it's death or not death and yours is more likely to work, that's all the evidence I need. Yeah. Insurance company, they don't care if you die. They say, well, I don't care if you die. I care if I save money. And before I do anything, I don't want to experiment. You have to prove without any doubt if you want to upfront expense anything that you save me money. The only way where they are saying, well, you know, I just, it needs to be more likely than not is if you save them expenses out of the gate. If you come in with a test and say, kick out that test, take my test, suddenly the evidence they need is shockingly low. It's like, okay, fine, we are convinced. But if you say you need to spend upfront more money than you do now because you will save money down the line, they're going to say, okay, come back and you have a level of evidence that is completely bulletproof. And so it's, it's just massively easier and faster to get to the, this level of evidence that employers and self-payers need. And that means you can, that's an advantage of the American system. The American system has many disadvantages for population health and general welfare and healthcare, but it has a massive innovation advantage that people are not taking advantage of. That's why it doesn't work. But it's basically prepared for us, for Quantine, to take total advantage of that. If you go to employers and self-payers full on and say you get the most advanced biotechnology and new medical systems that deliver that, we can actually prototype that much faster than in Europe, for example, where the system works better for everyone, but it's also more rigid. I see. So that's kind of the strategy for Quanti. We are going very hard into employer and self-payer mm-hmm. with serenity, cancer protection, but we are probably going to expand beyond that. We can... Within cancer, you can expand, you can add imaging, you can add all kinds of things to increase performance. It needs to be cost-effective, of course. And then there are other diseases that are adjacent. And I don't want to go too deep into the business strategy, but there is a lot of synergies to be had and lots of consolidation potential. Wow, sounds like there's big plans ahead there, um, Joe. I mean, what sort of time scale are you looking at on, on the, you know, in terms of is that five years, 10 years or, or next year? It sounds like you're a big fan of, of moving fast. How, yeah, how soon are we, are we looking? I always wonder, like, how can you not be a fan of moving fast? You always want to move as fast as possible, but not faster. So it's and, uh, well, we have our mission to extend the healthy human lifespan by 10 years within the next 10 years. So that's a pretty ambitious mission, but... I think very possible if you look at certain metrics in cancer, for example. If you knock out, if you decrease cancer mortality by 80%, which is totally possible through early detection, uh, you would already add very significantly going into these 10 years. Um, And then you have to add some other diseases and lifestyle measures. So our mission is very straightforward. We are deploying Serenity as we speak starting with some major employers, hopefully, in the second half of the year. 
um, we want to get to a million covered lives quickly, like in the next three years. And from there, we can build evidence to show that this whole thing works while we are expanding market access, but also technology components. And so I think we are on a good track and have to kick this off now and show commercial traction and adoption. And then we are on the path to get to 10 and 10, how we call it. I Joe, like it. I'm, I'm just curious, Joe, do, are you familiar with a book called The 100 Year Life? Because James and I have spoken about this quite a lot. And you're, sounds like you're doing something to make sure that we're all going to have a 100 year life. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the book. I'm familiar with the concept. I'm in California, so it's like a very widespread. That yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very pertinent. I mean, it, it's, it speaks to the fact that our children's generation will, will have, a, I think, a one in two chance of living to be 100, something like that. And, and it then talks about the types of careers and life that we'll need to live, the pensions that we'll have to maintain, the lifestyle choices that we may make as we get better knowledge. And, and you speak to exactly that point, which is pivotal to your mission and goals statement. So I just think that's absolutely awesome. I think we, I mean, my, my theory on that is that why I'm saying a decade within a decade, that's kind of a low hanging fruit. We are only at 78 average life expectancy. All you have to do is get to 88. And that's very doable. I think that, yeah. I think 100 is a little bit of wall Right, so you can push it towards 100, but it gets exponentially harder to really get average to 100. That's much, that's 10x harder than getting to 88. And then going beyond 100 will require <laughs> new stuff. I mean, going beyond 100, that will require. But also, the, the, other, the other point is, I, I don't know whether we want to live to be 100, depending on what that might look like. You know, I'd like to be in this body at the age of 100, but not necessarily in a 100-year-old body at the age of 100. And that's the other challenge, isn't it? Which is, you know, maintaining your well-being throughout that time, as well as your mental fortitude, your cognitive abilities, and all the things that you, you've spoken to earlier. Yes, but that's a, that's a given for me. I mean, if you get cancer, you see a deterioration of your body. If you don't get cancer, you see it much less. So, you know... I mean, it's, that's why breaking through the 100 significance to go to 150 or something will require some major, major stuff. So you yeah. can't get there by just early detection, prevention, and lifestyle. You will have to do something more synthetic, yeah. which is totally possible, but that's a lot more research to be done. I have some ideas on that, but it's too early for that. That'll be a talk for another, uh, another day, That sounds like part two. Yeah, but look, it's, it sounds like you've got a great mission. I love the fact that it's it's chopped up into uh, smaller sections. I think that your family must be proud of, of what you're doing. You must be proud of what you're doing. Uh, but I guess, look, before we let you go, uh, Adam and I have a couple of quick fire questions for you to, to wrap up um, the session. Um, the first one from, from myself is given your background and getting these un, uh, involuntary lectures that you had, what is the one piece of advice that you would <laughs> give to your younger self? I think the most important piece of advice would be to move to the US faster, 10 years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I hate to tell the Europeans, but I think if, if you want to do disruptive stuff, it's still for some reason the only place where you can really do that. There's just more capital, there's the, the spirit here, the angel investors, but also the community. 
that's just my no nonsense assessment. I like Germany, all great stuff, but you need an environment where people are crazy enough to just say, yeah, it sounds great. Do it. Here's the money. <laughs> I like it. It's very tough. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy here, but it's, it's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible, which is important. Is, is that got anything to do with the fact that people take less holidays there? So you've effectively got more working days anyway as a starting point. <laughs> no, I actually think it has to do. I mean, that's a whole different discussion. I wish someone would do a podcast only on that question, the cultural question in America, what is the magic thing? It's, yeah. for example, I think there's a human instinct to always make things smaller when you meet new people. It's like, ah, yeah, here's the problem. This is the problem. This is too ambitious. And it's only here, and it might be rooted not even in, in, in amazing like virtues. It's probably rooted in vices, in greed. It's this unique American greed that people literally meet you and they say, I want to do X, Y, Z. A German says like, that's a little crazy. Just you know, take it step by step. Don't be like here too ambitious and crazy. And do you even know who you are and blah, 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 all that stuff. Americans tend to say, dude, can't you just do 10 times faster, 10 times more because I make 100 times more money. <laughs> and so the madness of that is very, you know, it's very powerful. If you say, I want to shoot a rocket suborbital, they say, can't you just go to the moon and mine and bring that stuff back and make me a trillion dollars? Like, <laughs> you, you know? You've really hit a point there. You absolutely have. Culturally, because I've spent a lot of time in Germany as well. I, I worked in Munich for... For a period of time and i really identify with that that's really funny My so yeah it's a funny little thing but it's uh, still fascinating to me how this actually works oh i i should take that forward with 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 the second question actually and and i've already asked you about the hundred year life book but um we wondered we wondered generally you know what what book or resource are you currently using or would you recommend for our audience more more broadly and uh, what, what kind of resources a book or a resource or a podcast that you're you know you're oh. particularly engaged in at the moment that, that's giving you food for thought i mean the way i get inspired i can't even tell you the names of these guys uh i have them all stored this is the new world i don't remember the names i just know where to click um i actually use youtube a lot for inspiration i like and i go normally you know you guys do a great job here in, in healthcare but I think not many people do. So I get my inspiration mostly from non-healthcare. <laughs> all the Elon Musk fanboys fan and SpaceX. and so the disruptors. Yeah, disruptors. I'm getting there's, that sense. There's a cross-pollination when I see how, you know, the uh, serial number 15, like Starship and how they do it. It's actually helpful to look outside the industry and look at another ambitious venture similar to ours, yeah. but to space, literally space. Um, you know, the thinking, how they constantly disrupt things, how they say, yeah, that's how it's being done. That's why it's stupid and we have to do it this way. Yeah. And why not build a hundred starships instead of half a starship in like two years? That kind of thinking, this really paradigm shifting thinking, that's what I'm looking for as inspiration. Or like another book, yeah, I say this here, totally different thing from SpaceX, but I'm reading this book right now. The structure of Okay. So the structure of scientific revolutions. Nice. Yeah, okay. I just had it randomly in my backpack here from Thomas Kuhn from the 60s. It's not oh. the easiest read, but it's very theoretic about how scientific revolutions work and how science is kind of a system that 
suppresses scientific revolutions because scientists tend to be not revolutionaries and think in the box. You and got it. These scientific paradigms define a piece of science and then all the scientists are trained to work within the paradigm. And if someone breaks the paradigm, they think you're unscientific for 10 years yeah. until they then switch to the new paradigm. That's why everyone rejected Einstein and said, you don't know physics. Mm -hmm. So it's... So I'm trying to get inspirations from basically these two sides, from other entrepreneurs like Elon, but also other people or investors like Tamas, like people who are more radical about things and actually get massive things done on the engineering and finance side. And people who are very abstract thinkers or theoreticians about future and past of civilization, of innovation and of science. I think That's it's very, very, very congruent with, um, I guess, the rest of the chat that we've had, Joe. Um, and look, to, to move us on to the, the next question, um, you mentioned earlier that your team of, or the cloud team is relatively small. Um, however, it was about the quality of, of the people. Uh, and as I said, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, but what are the top three qualities that you look for when you're actually building that team or, or any other? The top three qualities, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, the biggest important thing is you have to not be a bullshitter. So we need, we need people who are heads down executor, right? So people who just work hard, who think about the problem, not the politics or not how to sell it. To mm -hmm. Which is, of course, contradicting to interviews, right? Because in interviews, people just bullshit you. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So we always like to test people. In engineering, it's the easiest because everyone does that to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much harder in management jobs and operations and stuff like that. So we really like case studies and say, okay, here's a problem. Can you solve it? Um, so no nonsense. That's very important. And then, of course, they need to have a positive I don't know, culture that they inspire. They need to be optimistic and, you know, positive people, mm -hmm. which can be also contradicting to the first thing. If you have a total doer who's sometimes a little cynical and some little dark, <laughs> you try to really find people who are excitable and positive, but also at the same time, hard workers and no bullshitters. So this mm -hmm. is the, the magic blend. These are just <laughs> I like I mean, that. We often, Adam, we often hear authenticity, don't we? Yeah. Um, that, the that the comes phrase is just don't be a bullshitter. I like that. Well, well, I mean, you know, some people say don't bullshit a bullshitter, but it's not even about that. It's, it's actually about figuring it out beforehand. But it's quite clear that you understand the qualities that you're looking for in, in those core people around which you're going to build an organization, you know, because ultimately... <laughs> It will yeah, scale yeah. based upon those the bricks that you're building, won't it? So it's key that you have those core skill set and the core personality styles around that within which you can then expand out, I would imagine. And for me, it's always incredibly unbelievable to see these deltas between people. Like the, some people, even here, I mean, we're not always successful in our ambitions in hiring. So uh, more often than not, but sometimes... So, I mean, you know, some people, if you say, okay, uh, you know, here's a customer or the problem is 10 customers are waiting for their results and we are late. Okay, what do we do? Like some people say, okay, here's the list. Let me type it down. Boom, I'm going to call them. Here's the email. Let me type the email. That's what we want. Mm -hmm. Other people say, well, that's a big problem. Um, I, you know, 
I propose we are doing a meeting with the heads of the departments or something to figure it out. And I'm doing a meeting now to figure out when the meeting is. It's like, okay, <laughs> that person has solved the problem in five minutes and you after 10 minutes try to schedule a meeting to figure out when the meeting is. I mean, just mm -hmm. again, economics, like how is this even smart? So you can think what that does to an organization over time. If you have one person versus the other, you are literally thousands of times faster with that kind of attitude. And to that point, I think you, you, you've reminded me of something that I, I learned a long time ago around agile thinking, which is failing fast, isn't it? You know, you're better off to fail fast, bin it, start again, crack on, fail, do it, crack on, rather than spend the time reinventing the wheel, chewing every, looking at every different angle. Sorry. There are lots of people who are just used to discuss stuff with other people. They're not used to do stuff. They're not doers. They're not doers. You need doers. You need people that are going to roll their sleeves up, get into the dirty stuff, sort it out. If it doesn't work, chuck it out. Let's go again. Let's yes. crack on and keep the momentum and the enthusiasm and the energy all the time. And if you have any kind of problem you're discussing and no one pulls up a Google sheet and starts doing something while you speak, you have a problem. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think Agreed. I think the the art the art is also in listening, isn't it? It's listening, and I think we we've we're picking up on that a lot through through the podcast that we've been doing. But the conversations that we've been having is really the art of listening is is being lost because people are constantly being distracted by other things all the time, and and the key to getting things done correctly once and once only to the best outcome is to listen to the problem, to figure it out, and take everyone along you with. For, along the journey with you i think that's key and and that that component of listening is really key i tell my kids it all the time listen 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 you know listen and learn listen and learn not to me but just listen <laughs> just take it in <laughs> wherever it is just take it in act like a sponge as much as you possibly can yeah absolutely um thank you so much for that uh just just outside of work i know we've talked a lot about a lot about what what you're doing inside of work what what do you do what do you do when you're downing tools do you do you ever think about things that aren't work related at the moment what do you do for fun is this fun is this your fun i mean this is by fun i'm a little obsessed with it so there's i mean of course i'm trying to be healthy and you know, <laughs> hiking all these things but uh i i mean there are some things outside work that is just my other work where it's about you know writing and thinking a little bit about the bigger picture beyond medicine not that medicine is not a bigger picture but there are other things out out there like you know culture and what i call pioneer land like how can we build a society that actually inspires everyone to do a lot of cool things and be a doer yeah. and you know nonsense be imaginative um education is involved there so that's kind of my hobby i'm working on that kind of stuff which actually helps the business because it this bigger picture is always important to see where is this localized in the greater innovation universe. I thought that would be the case. I knew that it would loop back in somehow. <laughs> I, I, also, I also anticipated that, that to be your answer. But um... I, I guess look, on, on that note, it sounds as though it is very much work orientated, but it's clear that you love what you do. You're, you're passionate about it for the personal reasons that you mentioned earlier. Um, You've brought a lot to the table uh, here today, Joe. Um, so look, for our audience, to wrap up the show, I, I guess the final question is, what is your number one golden rule 
um, for life and for, for business? Be a pioneer. Like it. Short, sweet. And I think you, you kind of epitomize that yourself, doesn't he, Adam? Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, I think as, as we've gone deeper and deeper into the, into the person, as much as, you know, your enthusiasm and your motivation, it's very clear that you're doing something that you're passionate about that gets you out of bed every day. And you are absolutely laser sharp focused around that. It's quite crystal clear. And I'm sure that all those people that work with you understand that as well to be their motivation, whether they like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, as we've already mentioned, it sounds like we might have to do a round two with some of the bits and pieces that you've gone, uh, you know, gone on to tell us here today. Uh, but look, for anyone that, that wants to reach out, I know that there's the Quant Dream uh, website. I know you're on LinkedIn. Is there any preferred method to reach out, whether it's investors or, you know, any of these no bullshitting doers um, that are looking to work for you? Um, what's the best way to get hold of you? LinkedIn is a good way. Or Twitter, Joe Bakhti on Twitter. Twitter.com slash Joe Bakhti. So uh, Joe does J-O, it's important, B-H-A-D-I. Um, yeah, that's a good way. It's not too hard to get in touch. Fantastic. Look, Joe, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Uh, I know that I'll uh, be keeping in touch. I'm sure that you and Adam will probably have a, a couple of conversations outside of this podcast as well, given the, the discussion we've had. Uh, but look, once again, thanks very much for joining us on the Huxley Mortar podcast. Have a fantastic day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Thanks Joe. so much, Joe.